Foster the People, uh, the band, uh, wrote a song not too long ago. And the chorus of the song goes like this. If you say that dreamers always get what they desire, well, I found the more I want, the less I've got. Is this the life you've been waiting for? Are you hoping that you'll be where you want with a little more? And the chorus of the song really echoes, I think, a um, struggle. In, in, in some ways, it's just the way we are designed. Because the way we're designed, we, we, we have desires, and we always want a little more. Our desires are infinite. And, and, and part of their infiniteness, and part of that reason, is that we're, we're made by God and for God. We're made by the infinite for the infinite. And my hope, as we've kind of walked uh, the last three weeks, is that we've pointed to the fact that nothing less than the full participation of our lives with the Trinity, with God himself, nothing less will ever fully satisfy. And when we move off that, from God the creator to things and money and jobs and everything else, even if they're good things, family and all the gifts that God brings, that all those things can't bear up under the weight and the pressure of human desire. That we do have this chronic sense of dissatisfaction, especially around money and stuff. G.K. Chesterton uh, says, um, uh, who's a great theologian of old, uh, there are two ways to get enough. One is to continually accumulate more and more, and the other is to desire less. And it's a struggle. I think uh, Rockefeller actually said when he was interviewed, like, when, when will there be enough money? And he said, there's, there's always a little more. And he's one of the wealthiest Americans to ever live. So today, uh, we're going to be jumping uh, back into Matthew just for a little bit. Uh, there's, uh, as we walk through Matthew 6, there's some more texts related to possessions and money and stuff like that. And so it felt a little odd to not treat that text because then we just treated two weeks later. Uh, and so uh, I want to uh, finish with this section. And it comes right off of Jesus' teaching. Uh, and, and I highlighted this the first week, the, the sort of good eye, bad eye conversation that happens around giving and treasures and how we see the world. Do we see it with a good eye or a healthy eye or a generous eye? Do we see that we can trust God with enough, that he's a good father who takes care of us and knows what's best for us? Or do we have a bad eye, a bit of a stingy eye, as often gets translated as, with a scarcity mindset? Is our eye looking for the worst of the situation? We're competition for resources, a hoarding of goods, a desire to control whatever we can control. And maybe it's causing us to be anxious or stressed because of that mentality. Because guess what? That's exactly where Jesus goes next. In the very next section, Matthew 6, starting in verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat and what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? And, you, and why are you anxious about clothing? Because they're the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. 
But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for today is its own trouble. So easy enough, right? Don't be anxious. Got it? Right? Cool. Bring the band back up. Worship. Straightforward. That's just what Jesus says. But for real, doesn't this sound so wonderful and so poetic? Jesus is like, look at the birds. The birds, God takes care of the birds. They fly around, they do their thing, and God takes care of them. So, and oh, look at the flowers. God takes care of the flowers. Isn't that wonderful? And Jesus also is like, and, and to be honest, you can't control things. You can't add to your life. You, you don't have control of things anyways. And that's where he kind of leaves us. <laughs> Thanks, Jesus. But what, but what helps us actually live out this way? What are the ways and perspectives and things that I think are undergirding the very thing that Jesus is calling his people to do? The perception, the things that tune our hearts in this direction, reminding us of the God that we have. That there's a a trust in God who will provide. And how God has designed us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, or as we've already noted, often gets uh, translated as generosity as well. What, what will work to help us stay there? And if we're talking about how we're designed to be, we naturally should go to the beginning. And I want to I go there next and take this interlude. Um, we're going to start with the creation story, and then we're going to kind of uh, almost like skip a rock across um, a few texts throughout Leviticus and Deuteronomy to kind of see what God has actually instructed his people, called his people, reminded his people to keep our heart tuned, to think in the way that we um, have a, a good eye, a way of seeing the world that would lead us, possibly, to let go of anxiety and move towards trust. Because God makes this world. The first thing we find out and I know, particularly in Reformed circles, we, we sometimes start with sin and the weight of it all, but the first thing God wants to tell us about what this world was like is that it was created and it was good. <clears throat> and the first thing he says about humans is that we were very good. First thing. Now, we'll get to the sin part, but that's the first thing God wants to tell us about what this world is supposed to be like. And he created us abundance and provision and presence, all of it that we had in the garden. I mean, he reminds the, the, the Adam and Eve, look, I've planted all of these plants for you to feed on, and I've given you this tremendous task, and I will walk with you in the cool of the breeze of the day. And it's so good, all of it. And in Genesis 2, we get a sort of retelling of the creation story of Adam and Eve. So God made man, put him in the garden. Now, what was the first thing that Adam had to do? Anybody remember? Name all the animals. Cool. That seems totally odd, right? Like, however cool, like reading that along and being like, why, why does he have to do that? Like, God could have just as easily just made Eve at that moment and been like, here's Eve. Now, 
Go, go be fruitful, multiply together. But no, he's like, let me give a parade of all these animals and you got to name them all. Why? Why does he have to name all the animals? It doesn't actually undergird particularly how we read the story all that significantly. Why name the animals? Like for real, I mean, thoughts. Why do we name the animals? Sure, yeah, there's some dominion, lordship stuff. Creativity, yeah. He's reflecting his image, um, reflecting the image of God and sort of um, the, the creator part of God. Yeah, yeah. Ownership? Yeah, yeah. What did you say? Yeah, I mean, the animals had to be named by somebody. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I don't know if boredom would have been a, a struggle in the garden. Um, I hope not, because that might say something about eternity, too. But, um, yeah. But it, it becomes an interesting question. And I think a, a, an important sort of follow-up question is, like, what does make animals different from humans? What, what are the things that make animals different? Like, for real? No, they can't name themselves. So they, they can't talk or, or things like that, right? What else? Nope, yeah, that's an important one, which I think we're about to unpack part of it. Anything else? Yeah, sure. Yeah? Right? It doesn't seem like they're rational creatures or something like that in terms of some of the ways he act. Anything else? Sure, yeah. Right, yeah. They seem a little more existential, which I think both of those kind of deal with. And they're, they're very in the moment. No, totally. True, right. Yeah, I don't disagree. I think the Bible's actually going to say that too. So, of all the things we have listed, we encounter an animal in the garden, right? A specific animal. Genesis 3. Serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, you shall eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, which is an additional command, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So... Are all of our things that we described animals holding up in this moment? They're talking. They're rational. They seem to know instructions from their past and present. And they're relating. Not only that, the serpent's actually walking, in case we picture the serpent not, because the curse that he'll eventually have is that he has to crawl from that point on. We are meant to see the serpent quite humanly. But yet we are told multiple times in this text that it is a beast. He's craftier than any beast in the field. Yet, he's incredibly human. He's even called crafty Aram, which sounds a whole lot like naked, which we're always told about from Adam and Eve, which is also Aram. It just sounds quite similar. He's incredibly human. And it raises a question. Sorry. Um, like, dawn on me. Um, <laughs> it raises a question. 
what is the real temptation of the snake that's actually issued to Eve? Because there, there's so many peculiar things in this text, right? Because the serpent comes says, you can be like God. What are we already told in, G- in Genesis 1? That they are like God. They are literally the only thing that bears the image of God. And the serpent comes, you can be just like God. It's like, hello, we already are. You shall not surely die. What's wrong with that idea? They, yeah, when they eat of it, they don't just like collapse, die, right? So there's some half-truths half that are going on in the story. The snake's sort of partially correct. Even the problem of the statement saying, you, you shall know good from evil. What's wrong with that? At some point, Eve goes, hey, what's evil is eating of this fruit, and what's good is for me not to eat of this fruit. She's already actually answered with some knowledge of what is good and evil in that moment. There had to be some awareness. Otherwise, it's hard to hold it against her if she actually has no knowledge of good and evil. It would only be the second time she ate the fruit that would ultimately be the punishment of Eve. And so, what do we do with this? And I think the whole drive, why it becomes interesting that Adam has to go through naming all the animals, and why it becomes interesting that we're presented with this very humanoid version of an animal, a beast of the field, is a reminder of the fact that human beings are not beasts. The snake that seems human and walks, really, and relates. And, 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 that, and I think the instruction is, Adam, it is not good for you to be alone, but I also need you to know that you are not like everything else out here. And what's the difference between us and animals? Yes, the image of God, but what does that mean? And perhaps, perhaps it's about knowing how to trust that God is enough and not holding back. And he puts this tree in the garden, and he reminds them, I need you to know that you are not an animal. You are in my image and to trust. And there's desires that are good, to eat and to drink and to sleep and all those things. But the temptation of the snake is to use her desire and to start acting like a beast. Because what do beasts do? How do beasts act? Like if they're hungry, they eat. They eat. If they want to mate, they mate. Right? That's what they do. Like I'm never, I, don't, I don't think there's a bear that's like, hey, uh, I should shed a few pounds and I'm going to skip a meal today. <laughs> right? But no, but they act off of just the desire. There's no self-restraint that we ever really see in the animal world. But humans are people who are designed to harness their creative powers and desires and to live out the vocation to be fruitful, multiply, and fill and subdue the earth and to trust that God has created this world as good and he has given us everything we need. It starts there. That God is not holding out on us and not letting our disordered desires become the thing we are listening to. We're not listening to the serpent that says, no, there's not enough. But we are loved and valued and accepted, and we have everything we need. And if Adam and Eve lived that out, what a difference this world would be. And let me remind you, this is the good eye understanding of the world, to see the world and go, you know what? I have a good father who has provided for me. That fruit looks desirable, and it looks like these things, but he has called me to live in a way that, that I tune my desires to what he has told me is true and real. And when I overstep those is when sin enters into the world. It's this beautiful picture, and I think there's other pieces of that, but um, I want to keep moving. Because we we get an introduction by the very next chapter, into chapter four, I would argue of a way of indexing our hearts 
back to trusting God in all things. As sin has entered into the world, there's, there's something we see right from the get-go. A way to, I would argue, lead to Jesus saying, do not be anxious, trust God in these things, and, and thanksgiving and prayer. Because sin enters the world, Adam and Eve have a few kids, and God sets up a way of indexing our hearts in the very next story. Because we have Adam and Eve, and they want to bring an offering to God. And it says this in Genesis 4. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock, of the fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no reward. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And so we see all throughout the Old Testament offerings of of meat, offerings of grain, both are acceptable practice in terms of certain offerings to God. And we don't get necessarily a clear instruction that God said, bring me animals or not. But we do get this important adjective that describes Abel's giving that's different than Cain's. And that is around sort of the firstborn, this sort of first fruits understanding of giving. And hear me, this is long before the law is ever given. This is like the first act that happens after Adam and Eve leave the garden is this, is this offering. And an offering of first fruits that's accepted, and the offering of not first fruits that's not. Now, I want to be clear. Some people conflate first fruits and the tithe. Scripture does not. There will be times later where the tithe sort of get, becomes a little bit bundled in, in the law, but this idea of first fruit is a huge overarching idea throughout the rest of Scripture. And so, uh, Exodus 22, just, just to walk through some text of what Israel was, was called to be. So Israel has been set free from Egypt. They're giving, uh, God's giving them the initial instructions on the kind of people they are to be. And he reminds them of this, uh, 22, 29. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your hardness and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother, and the eighth day you are to give it to me. So... This is not simply about sheep and crops. God, right from the get-go, says firstborn sons, which raises, I hope, a couple questions. Why did God declare that? Crops and animals, I get, right? Sure, but sons. That starts seeming like a lot. And could it be, I think, two things. He starts with the firstborn son because he wants to drive home that it's about all the blessings of life and particularly some of the most important things to us. Crops may not be the most important things to us. Children might be. And there's no part of our lives that the principles of first fruits doesn't touch. It's not simply about income. It's about all of life. Not only that, but God's people were called to be firstborns themselves, dedicated to God. They were called the firstborn son and they were set apart for God so that they would be uh, representatives of their father to the rest of the nations, which are the rest of the children. And God's reminding them, my people, my firstborns are set apart. Now, how do you actually give your son? Well, there's all sorts of laws given. There's redemption laws, which are ways to like buy back there's a certain value placed upon the child, and you can um, give that to God. It's prices laid out in Leviticus. And these offerings, these, these practices, were a way of recognizing God's giving of blessing, including children. You can also give them to the priesthood, which happens to Hannah. But overall, it's a um, financial transaction. Or Leviticus 27, every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or the fruit of the trees, is the Lord. 
It is holy to the Lord or set apart to the Lord. If a man wishes to redeem some of his tithe, he shall add a fifth to it. And every tithe of herd and flocks, every tenth animal of all that pass under the herdman's staff shall be holy to the Lord. One shall not differentiate between good and bad, neither shall he make a substitute for it. And if he makes a substitute, then both it and the substitute shall be holy. It shall not be redeemed. So here we get some of the instructions connecting the tithe, but every tenth, every tenth of everything that the Israelites would have, every tenth of their crop, every tenth of their, their livestock, whatever it be, and there's instructions to buy it back from God, that it has a value and you can add a fifth and, and you can keep it. So if you're hungry and you need to keep it, there is a way to do that. But each way is a gesture of recognition. It's a constant build-in system of going, this is from God, to, to remind us step after step after step, a way to say, thank you, thank you, thank you. That, that is what the instruction is doing every single time, to say thank you over and over and over and over again. So like even when they harvest, they, they would be allowed to harvest the first tenth, but then they had to stop. They couldn't finish harvesting. They're instructed to then take that harvest and dedicate it to God, what they're doing, before they, before they go and eat it themselves, before they go and trade it, whatever it is, um, before they enjoy it at the goodness of the table, they are to dedicate it and recognize that God is the provider of all good things. It's part of their practice. There's even a bunch of instructions about sort of the festivals and parties. By the way, you know God basically is like, you guys need to party or I'll kill you. Right? We're not taught that in Sunday school, but it is instructions in the Torah. Hey, guys, have this massive festival. Eat all the best foods that you can have. I need you to party. Otherwise, I'm going to be mad. And he reminds them to party. And he gives them all these party instructions, Leviticus 23, all these festivals that we're supposed to have. And at the end, he says, these are the important feasts of the Lord's of the Lord, which you shall proclaim as times of holy convocation for presenting to the Lord food offerings, burnt offerings, grain offerings, the sacrifices of drink offerings each on its proper day, besides the Lord's Sabbath. So this is in addition to the Sabbath and some of the tenth teaching. And besides your gifts, and besides all your vow offerings, and besides all your free will offerings, which the, you give to the Lord. So there's all the offerings that are already built into the system. And then he says, and have these festivals. And when you come to these festivals, you shall bring even more to say, thank you. Every time you get a bonus, thank you. Every time you buy a new car, to say thank you. Every time you sell something, to say thank you. Or return back to God over and over and over and over and over again. And even when they're living in abundance, they're instructed again to say thank you, to say thank you, and to say thank you. Deuteronomy 8. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I obeyed you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when you have herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, which is not relevant to most of us, right? Living in this kind of abundance. Then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water from a flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do the good in the end, to do you good in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. And that's a lesson we have to learn in our culture. 
I think too often we betray ourselves. I have gotten a raise. I have gotten a bonus. I have gotten an A on my test, whatever it is. And some of you are like, it was a miracle that I got that A, so I'm going to give that to God. No. (laughs) But do we recognize that God has orchestrated moments and circumstances and situations and all these things to lead to the very things that we even have? And that's a reminder to Israel here. Hey, before you start claiming this is all yours, and hear me, they're working hard in the fields. They're doing the work. They're, they're, they're raising those, those calves themselves. They're not miraculously just, I mean, they're putting in the work. But God's like, just remember, for you to have all the abundance that you're having, even in this moment, I want you to be gratitude. I want you to be thankful in this. Verse 18, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives the power to give wealth, to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after the gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. And so God's saying, never forget that I'm the one who blesses. And whether it's a lot or a little, let's be clear, whether it's scraping by or having a padded bank account, that we not forget where any of it comes from. And the beauty of the system is that there were reminders over and over and over and over and over and over again, prior to the law, but including the law, for God's people to just remember and to say thanks. They're instructed not to show up empty-handed to the temple, to the party, whatever it is, time and time again. Because how silly would it be to stand before the most generous God of the universe, the giver in some ways of everything in our lives that we have ever enjoyed? Let's be clear on that. We might not enjoy them in the improper way, but everything good in life that we have ever enjoyed ultimately has its starting point in God. He's the giver of all good gifts. And yet the warning is don't show up with nothing to the most generous God of the universe. Deuteronomy 26, let's just keep going. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance and have taken possession of it and live in it, you shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground, which you harvest from the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall put it in a basket. You shall go to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name to dwell there. You shall go to the priest who is in the office at the time and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come to the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket from your hand. This is a long section, but bear with me. Take the basket in your hand, set it down before the altar of the Lord, and you shall make response before the Lord your God. So this is their response. When they bring their basket, when they come to the Lord, when they um, bring this offering of first fruits, he says, a wandering Aramean was my father, and he went down to Egypt and sojourned there. Few in number, and there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid, us on, laid on us hard labor. When we cried out to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given me. 
And you shall set it before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given to you and to your house, you and Levite and a sojourner who is among you. So once again, this regular festival of first fruits and others, these moments built into the life of the Israelites, reminding them of all that God has done, and they remind themselves of the story of who God is, that we were once a lost people, but then God formed a family by faith and blesses that, that family to be a blessing to others, and he delivers them by his grace and grace alone. And whenever we give thanks to him, whenever we give of the first fruits, whenever we practice all these things that are meant to tune our hearts, we, 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 we um, remind ourselves of the most important facts, that we have a generous God who so loved this world that he gave and was generous, who sent his son to deal with the biggest struggle that all of us have, which is sin that separates us from God, that, that brings destruction into our lives. And, and, and he ultimately dealt with that on the cross, and he paid for that sin, and, and, he, and he puts in us by faith his righteousness, and we now live that out, and, and we respond in total thankfulness. So I think there's a couple practical observations about all that God has done through this, and, and all these pieces, and all the ways that I think God is teaching the Israelites that are still to be practiced in some ways today. And this first is that the stuff in our lives isn't our stuff to begin with. The regular practice of taking the initial piece of it and taking a part of it and and anything we have and have gained and saying, thank you, thank you. This is all from you, God. Thank you. This portion is in response. Thank you. And you want to know how to live a life that's not living in this anxiety of whether God is going to provide and whether God's going to care. I would argue, start living a a life of gratitude, and that will start changing your heart. I think it will start indexing our hearts to constantly live in the state where I'm like, you know what? I trust my Father. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And I'm willing to give first fruits. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And see where it leads. Now, it's interesting, in Numbers 18, it says, The Lord spoke to Aaron, who's the high priest. Behold, I have given you a charge of the contributions made to me, all the consecrated things of the people of Israel. I need you to hear, very clearly, as we kind of wrap up this campaign. The first fruits are not given to the temple. They're not given to an institution. They're not given to the church budget. They're not given to the church. They're not given to the church staff. First fruits are given to God. And God alone. It's about you and it's about me. It's not how you feel about the church budget and whether you totally align with it. Because God will go on to say, hey, Israelites, uh, uh, your givings that you've given to me, I entrust the priest with these things. They are to follow these instructions that I've given to them. And now, if the priest misuse those funds that have been given, the priest will have to answer for that. Absolutely. But for many of us, we may be robbing ourselves of the first fruits thankfulness practice because we don't like an institution, because we don't like the current budget, we don't like the way things are run. And when God reminds us time and time again, he says, look, I don't need anything from you. The head of a thousand cattle on hill, that are mine. I don't need you to do anything. I'm giving this to you. This, this teaching on first fruits, these practices of thankfulness, all of these things are for our benefit, not because God needs it. 
because they actually produce in us a kind of life that actually is true life, full of gratitude, contentment, thankfulness. It's a gesture of recognition to say, you know what, this isn't even mine to begin with. It saves us from ourselves, from viewing things uh, to help us view things appropriately, to, to work on our anxiety, allow the Holy Spirit to actually do that transformation work, to live in a life where we're saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. And a couple questions to finish up. What kind of commitment are you making? And we've encouraged you to do this. We, we want to provide this sort of trellis uh, kind of experience for the vine of your discipleship to grow, we, we want to provide, hey, here's some ideas, here's some frameworks, here's some goals we want to set with and for you. So you might step into, I think, all that God has in your discipleship. And so uh, today, as you've um, hopefully prayed and thought about, today's the day to kind of turn these cards on. Um, and this is beneficial, I think, to you. I, I think it's for us as well as a church. Um, for us to know kind of where God is leading, where God has taken us, where God is leading the congregation in terms of their generosity. Um, and if you're a partner here, we, we covered some of those pieces uh, this past week. And if you're not a partner or a member, we will roll some of that out uh, over the next six months or so. But um, to kind of see, all right, God, what is generosity? Is, is this people, is our church going to be a generous people? Are we going to step into practices and patterns of thankfulness, of simplicity, of holding things open-handed and saying, you know, I can't control. God takes care of birds. He takes care of flowers. He'll take care of me. And I can't add a day to my life. And I got to see this world through this good eye where I trust and see God all that he is. On the other side, perhaps you're still hesitant. Maybe there was some person some church, some institution, that at some point abused your trust, abused your finances, abused your whatever. And now it gets in the way of what God wants to do in your heart through first fruits and generosity. Don't let that person or institution get in the way. If it's not here, look, we'll be okay. But God has a way to transform your heart, and uh, he's inviting us into this practice. Those people will have to answer to the Lord for whatever they did. Just like we as staff and elders will answer if we misuse any generosity of this church. But don't let that get in the way of what God might want to do for you. And as we wrap up, I said at the beginning, our hope is to help equip you with these things. Uh, We have a box Uh, on the side of the room, Uh, whether you do it during communion, whether you do it on your way out, I encourage you to drop these off. Um, It's helpful, as I said, for us, and maybe we can help and encourage you in your generosity, Uh, and it's um, helpful for you in that way, too. And my hope is that all the anxiety and stress that comes from a bad eye, that we can begin to change, because that's the world at large. So many people I know who don't know Jesus, like this is a huge part of their lives. And my hope is to be this set-apart people in the city who just live differently, who just live knowing that God has provided enough that I can trust, 
I don't need to grab and grab and grab and grab and grab and seek control and seek control and seek control. We have a good God. Let me pray for us. God, as we move into communion, we simply want to say thanks. As I said, thanks for the rain. Thanks for breath. Thanks for living in a place that most of us didn't choose to be born in yet, a place with clean water, food, shelter for most of us. It's accessible at least. God, sometimes just getting up out of bed should be just a moment of blessing and thanks for us. As we lay our heads down at night, a thankfulness for the day. God, we just want a life marked with gratitude and trust. That we're not grabbing at things just like a beast of the field, that we learn to trust you in what you say and what you do, what you say this world is like, what you say that uh, when you say that you will provide, when you say um, that you take care of birds and flowers and that you'll take care of us, God, may we just step forward and trust. May we live into the practices that remind us of that every day. The first fruits of everything we have to say thank you, thank you, thank you. Amen.